Our scripture for today comes from Luke 10, chap, uh, cha- sorry, Luke chapter 10, 30 through 37. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. It's great to be with you guys. My name is Brad. If you don't know me, I'm uh, the lead pastor here and one of the elders at Mercy Hill. Um, Today we're going to look at a story that Jesus told. I don't know about you guys. I love a good story. Um, One of my favorite stories from this last little season of training for the St. Jude Marathon, um, Ben and Andrew and I are going to run next weekend. Everybody knows St. Jude's next weekend. They either have a family member who's running and they're sick of hearing about it, or they're running and they're excited about it, or they just know that they're not planning to go anywhere on Saturday, because Midtown and Downtown are going to be like gridlock. But um, several months ago, uh, one, one of my best friends, Matt Nason, works Alpha Shift with Memphis Police Department. And Andrew and I were rolling up at like 5.45 in the morning for this group run on a Saturday. And what do you know, but we see this police car like giving us the eye. And I'm thinking like, we're not speeding. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Why is this guy? And it's Matt. So Matt catches up with us. He's had a slow night. He's getting ready to go to Chick-fil-A and grab some breakfast before he clocks out. And, and he said, how far are y'all going this morning? We talked for a minute. He said, maybe I'll just drive around behind y'all and play like eye of the tiger through my intercom system or something. We were like, yeah, that'd be great. We didn't think any more about it. And we go and we meet up and there's like 100, 200 people for this group run down in Overton Square in the theater and we're hanging out and they go through, you know, all the directions and stuff. And then we take off to run and Andrew and I are some of the first people to to come out and we turn right coming out of the theater going up by Memphis Pizza Cafe and kind of out of the corner of my eye, I see this police unit sitting behind us. And I think, who is that? And about that time, I hear, dun, 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 and everybody goes, yeah, and Matt, it's Matt playing the Eye of the Tiger, and um, it was, it was hilarious. Um, now, it's a fun story. My stories don't have any point. Um, it's just a fun story. Jesus' stories actually had a point, and the, the, the story that we're going to look at today is a really interesting story. Uh, 35% of Jesus' teaching in the gospel were actually stories. They were parables, and this is a parable that Jesus shared, a short story that illustrates a point. Today, I want to share this parable with you that's known as the Good Samaritan, Someone asked me why I didn't wear my sweater vest today because I've entitled this message, Won't You Be My Neighbor? How many of you are familiar with this parable, The Good Samaritan? Like you've heard the title of it? Yeah, a lot of us. 
A lot of us have heard this story. We've heard it taught on. Maybe we even know the characters. But I chose this parable because I've heard it most of my life, but I don't think I've truly understood the point of this parable. Anybody ever watch that old movie, Princess Bride? Yeah, you remember that point where he just continually says, inconceivable, and then it happens. And then he says it again, inconceivable, and then it happens. And finally, he, one of the other characters looks at him and says, I do not think that word means what you think that word means. And the same is true for this parable. For most of us, I don't think it means what most of us have grown up hearing it taught, what we actually think it means. Most of us mistakenly think Jesus is trying to teach us about our actions. And so we will typically go away from this parable feeling guilty that we didn't do more for the lady who was standing on the corner with the sign or, or for the man that we saw begging for food, maybe outside a local coffee shop, even this morning. Over the years, I've heard this story taught, and, and I've interpreted the main idea to be that we should slow down and do more for the poor. And while that is likely true, let me say that again, while that is likely true, I don't think that's primarily what Jesus is teaching. I don't think Jesus is mainly appealing to our actions. I believe Jesus is calling us to examine our attitudes even deeper to examine our hearts. Now look with me at Luke chapter 10. I want to back up just a few verses. And let's read verses 25 through 28 together to try to get a bit of context here. And in verse 25, Luke begins writing and he says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The lawyer who came to Jesus, he actually took 613 laws that he knew quite well from the Old Testament. And he summarized them using Deuteronomy 6, um, what I commonly refer to as the Jewish Pledge of Allegiance. It was taught to a child from the moment that they could learn to speak. And they would say it in the morning, and they would say it in the evening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. He takes the Shema and he com combines it with Leviticus 19 and summarizes all of the law and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says you've answered well. Now, look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? In the day and time in which we live, this is a really interesting question for us to make an attempt to answer. Especially as followers of Jesus in the political climate in which we live. Who is my neighbor? You can't watch the news today 
without this question coming up. And the way in which we interpret this question most likely even decides or determines which news channel we watch. Who is my neighbor? Oftentimes when we heard this passage taught, we think that this lawyer is trying to, to tie Jesus up in some way, to back him into a corner. However, if you look at it in the original language, even in the English, it doesn't show any hostility or any entrapment. It seems to be an honest question. Jesus, I really want to follow you. I really want to have it. At least eternal life. I don't know if I want to follow you yet, but Jesus, I'm interested in eternal life. I'm interested in doing whatever it takes. I should love my neighbor as myself. Well, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers that question in this way. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles long. So it's further than a half marathon. If you think about this terrain, this rocky terrain, hilly terrain, we're, we're talking about most likely about a day's journey here. And so a full day's journey, 17 miles, a very dangerous journey. There were many caves along the road where thieves and robbers would wait in order to hide, to rob people as they traveled. And it would, it would be like going through that part of Memphis that you don't want to be in at 3 a.m. And I'm not talking about riding through with your car doors locked and your windows up. I'm talking about walking through Orange Mound or Hollywood and Chelsea or that part of South Memphis that you don't even know the name of but you drove through there one time and thought, I'm not sure I want to be caught here at three in the morning. You know what I'm talking about? And so this man is, is caught by these robbers, and Jesus doesn't tell us if the man is Jew or Gentile. Interestingly, he doesn't tell us if he's rich or if he's poor. It simply says that he is stripped and beaten and left half dead. Jesus tells us he's a human who's been treated in a way that's, in, that's not humane. It's inhumane. Look with me at verses 31 and 32. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he saw him, came to the place and, and passed by on the other side. You know it's a good story. When a priest shows up in the story, right? <clears throat> priest walks into a bar. You know, it's always going to be a good story when there's a priest in the story. But unfortunately here, the priest and the Levite pass by on the other side. What does this suggest? Possibly they were scared to come in contact with what appeared to be a, a possible dead body. That would mean that they would become unclean, unable to serve in the temple, unable to meet their responsibilities and their duties, at least for a period of time. Maybe they felt their journey or their duties as a priest were somehow more important than this dying man that they didn't know, that we'll come to see in a moment, that they actually didn't really like. So they each continue walking. Who is my neighbor? Look in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. 
The story stops here. But a Samaritan, a half-breed, those people who intermarried with the Jews, those people who the Jews could not stand now for over six centuries because they did not encourage Nehemiah in the rebuilding of the temple. I mean, this was a group of people that were near them, but they were hated. It was a place of refuge for Jewish outlaws. There was nothing good about a Samaritan, pretty much the way that Auburn fans consider Alabama these days. Or maybe, to hit a little closer to home, the way Tennessee fans consider Vanderbilt. Sorry, that was wrong. But no, on a serious note, Samaritans, we lose the gravity of this moment in the story because we can't comprehend the hatred of the Jews toward the Samaritans. For a Samaritan, of all people, to be introduced as the protagonist, as the hero of the story, it would have literally sucked the air out of the room. And look back at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Who is my neighbor? He had compassion. Don't miss that word. He was moved internally. It doesn't say that When he saw him, he remembered that sermon his pastor had preached, and he thought, oh, I better. It doesn't say when he saw him, uh, he remembered the small group study that his small group had been through, and he thought, I guess I ought to. It says when he saw him, he was moved with compassion, That there was something within him that stirred within his soul as if to say, I cannot leave him here alone. Not that it would just be wrong, but that I can't leave him. I must. I will. And so he did. Look at verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Stop and consider the sacrifice that this entails. Tearing a garment to bind up his wounds. Pouring out precious and expensive oil and wine on a complete stranger giving him the place of honor on his animal while he walks, would have slowed his journey considerably. Would have made his journey so much harder. He, in essence, is saying, you're more important than I am. Who knows? Jesus doesn't tell us the details. Maybe his listeners knew that maybe this guy had just planned poorly. Maybe the man who has been beaten, maybe he was traveling at night. Maybe the priest in Levi walked by and said, poor planning on your part. You shouldn't have been out here. It's three in the morning. We're walking during the day. We're wise. You're dumb. That's the way dumb living, that's what it'll get you. We don't know any of the details, but what we do know is in answering the question, who is my neighbor? This man was moved with compassion And he extended 
that his actions showed that he considered the man to be more important than himself to the degree that it inconvenienced him greatly. Look at verse 35. He doesn't stop at that. And the next day, he took out... So he takes him to an inn. The next day, he stays with him overnight. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. We hear that kind of two denarii, and we're like, that eh, doesn't sound like much. Depending on how much you make, it's two to three hundred dollars. It's kind of a day's labor. But if you do the math on what you make a day, for most of us, if we're middle class, it's a couple, at least at least a couple hundred dollars, maybe two to three hundred or more. It's just a significant amount of money that he has left in order to care for this man. It's a pretty Decent investment, but it's kind of a bigger investment because he's committed himself. He's walking away, and he's saying, I'm going to come back and check on him, and if there's any extra, I'll pay that tab as well. Look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Which of the three proved to be a neighbor? And I think this is the point of the story. Who was the good neighbor? Which uh, Jesus is trying to teach us. And look at verse 37 in answering the question. Who was the good neighbor? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Listen to how the lawyer responds. He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The lawyer could not even utter the words, the Samaritan. He can simply say, the one who showed him mercy, the Samaritan. The the entire point of the story was to answer this question. Who is my neighbor Who was the good neighbor in the story? The one who showed mercy. The Samaritan. The lawyer's enemy. The lawyer's enemy. Jesus seems to be saying that our neighbor is our greatest enemy. And the point of this parable is this. When the gospel infiltrates our hearts, when we love... when When we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind, and when we love our neighbors as ourselves, the Holy Spirit will empower us to even love our enemies as we love ourselves. You say, how? That's impossible. But you see, that's what Jesus did for us. That's the whole point of the gospel. When we were his enemy, he died for us. When we were robbed and beaten up and left half naked by Satan and our own sin, in the midst of our hopelessness, in the midst of our poverty, Jesus came to us. But we weren't half dead. We were rotting in the grave. And he picked us up and he bandaged our wounds and he healed us. 
Does this parable teach us that we should slow down and serve the poor more? It implies that. But Jesus isn't trying to change our action. I think he's trying to change our hearts. He's saying that our neighbor, your neighbor is your greatest enemy because that's who you were to me and I gave everything for you. Now I'm calling you to love those who are in need, even those who are undeserving, even your enemies. The hallmark of a Christian is that not only should they serve people's spiritual needs, but also we should serve their physical, material, and economic needs. We all know John 3, 16 and 17. Let me remind us of it. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We all know John 3, 16 and 17. We see it every Sunday when they kick extra points. Somebody's holding it up behind the field goal posts. But do we know 1 John 3, 16 and 17? 1 John 3, 16 and 17, which says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you see the truth? If you love Jesus, you will love and serve the poor. Who is my neighbor? We've created this tension in America, in the church. We can't blame America for it. We're a part of this because it's a tension that we've created in the church over the previous half century. And the tension really doesn't exist in the scriptures. In the church, we've created this tension that says there's a a seemingly um, conservative mindset that says, be a good evangelist. So just worry about the future. John 3, 16 and 17 is the gospel. But then there's also this tension within the church that there's a seemingly liberal mindset that says, care for social justice issues. Worry about now. Look at 1 John 3, 16 and 17. How can we share the love of Jesus with someone if we're not willing to give them something to eat? And that tension doesn't exist in the Scriptures because the Gospel says that the kingdom of God is at hand, which means that it is both now and not yet. Therefore, it has present and future implications, and it causes and calls the church to care for all needs. To care for needs that people have now, and also care for their souls, and to care for where they're going to spend eternity. That they would come to know Jesus now, that they would see the kingdom of God that is at hand, that Jesus' rule and reign might impact their lives even now. See, when you realize that you're a sinner who's been saved by grace, when you know that you're spiritually poor on your own, you're going to love the poor. If you're a legalist and you think you're saved by your good works, 
then you're going to think that those people need to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And that's the reason why it's an index of where our heart is in how we love and serve the poor. There are three really helpful classifications when it comes to helping people that as you think about what does it look like to love those who are under-resourced, there's three helpful classifications I want to share with you. The first is relief. The first is relief. And so I think about um, a friend, Arthur, who I've mentioned before that I met outside of Starbucks. And um, relief that morning looked like buying Arthur a biscuit, um, inviting him to church, giving him some clothes, um, sharing some next steps with him, how he could go to the hospitality hub and, and get ID, and letting him know how we were available um, if he ever needed a spiritual family or people to help care for him. That's relief. Coming alongside someone and just treating them as a human being. And I want to encourage you, um, there are a lot of under-resourced people who are around us. There are a lot of those who are poor. We many times just jump to the conclusion of thinking to the man or woman that we saw outside of Starbucks this morning. And I saw a guy. Um, I want to encourage you to practice something. When you see someone who is down and out, And a street person is kind of who we think of first, like the poster child for those who are poor. They're not the only people who are poor. We're going to get to that in a minute because there are some people who have millions and they don't realize it, but they're poor. But when you see a street person, whether you have cash or not and whether you give them cash or not, simply go up and just offer them a good morning. Good morning, how are you? Just talk with them. It doesn't mean that you're going to share anything with them. It doesn't mean that you owe them anything. It doesn't mean that you're going to give them cash or that you're going to buy them a couple of Just talk with them. Hey, how are you doing? Good morning. Treat them as a human being. And then allow the Holy Spirit to influence what you do after that. What I have found is that when I do that, God gives me more than what I give them. I'm always encouraged. In one way or another. I'm not saying it always goes well, but I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged to pray for them. I'm encouraged and reminded of my own spiritual poverty and how God came to me. Now, as we do that, I think it reminds us of those who are poor around us, and there are many who are poor. Poverty has um, a lot to do with our socioeconomic system, and it also has a lot to do with just our love for God. Some of you were with family members over this last couple of days, and you realized the spiritual poverty of their lives. You're just burdened by how much their life is all about them, and how the gospel influences very little of their decision making. They're poor. And maybe they're the poorest of the poor. Because of the people that I know who walk the streets, the majority of them have a Bible in their bag. And a lot of them at least will call on the Lord. They may not all be followers of Jesus, but they know they're in need. Some of our family members don't even know they're in need. And so when we come in contact and when we do relief for those who are struggling, it reminds us, of our own poverty of spirit. It reminds us of those who are not yet followers of Jesus 
who are also poor in spirit, who don't yet know the love of the Father. The second form of helping is development. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. Um, we, there were laws that concerned gleaning in the Old Testament. You read the book of Ruth, and she's uh, picking up, um, and she's working from the margins of the field. And these gleaning laws um, were getting the poor on their feet. And so there were indentured servants who worked for their masters until they could pay off debt. And, and when they paid their debt off, oftentimes the owners would send them away with grain, with a spade, with the tools that they needed to work, with whatever it took for them to sustain life. Development is more costly than relief. You can do relief and you can kind of move on. Relief is what we see happening with the Good Samaritan. Development, it takes time. Development is more what we're attempting to do through Mercy House Ministries as we're walking with moms who need to be resourced. In the final stage of helping, there's relief and development, and then there's reform. And, and reform is mainly the job of Christians in politics and in influential positions in government and in the marketplace. It's not, uh, not best for individual churches, most likely, to step in um, but it's super important if ministry of the word and good deeds are to make a difference. We need reform in the way that we care for, in the way that we love. We can share the gospel and help people see Jesus and to tell them how he found us half naked, robbed of joy, robbed of hope, beaten up by sin. And Jesus healed our wounds. He forgave our sins. He offers life now for all of eternity. As we end today and as we prepare our hearts for communion, and we invite everyone who's a follower of Jesus um, to come to his table. He spent that last meal, um, that time of communing with his disciples. He spent it, and he took a tradition that was well known to them. And he said, instead, I'm going to... I'm going to use this tradition that's well known to you, and I'm going to offer it now, historically, for all the church, for all time, as a reminder. My body broken for you. My blood shed out for you, spilled out for you. He used it as a tradition that, that we need. Uh, not something that becomes common, or not something that becomes um, just traditional or something that we do because it's just what we do every Sunday, but a reminder. A reminder of the truth of the gospel. A reminder not only of how he lived, but a reminder of how he calls us to live. The Bible teaches that the gospel is always a ministry of word and deed. And Jesus modeled this for us. It's even a ministry to our enemies. As you prepare your heart to come and, and to be reminded of Jesus' sacrifice for us, let me ask a question. Who are your enemies? Who are those that Jesus is calling you to love? Most likely we would think, well, I don't really have enemies. Who are the people that you hoped wouldn't be there at the Thanksgiving table? Who are those that you need to pray for? We've just finished an election cycle. Maybe some of your enemies are those who are in office. And Jesus is calling you to daily 
maybe not just to spend all your time reading the news, but maybe to pray for some of those people that there's so much disdain for them in our hearts. Maybe your enemies have become someone at work, someone who's made fun of you, someone who you've given up on, someone that you think, I hope I don't see them today. Who is Jesus calling you to love, to go out of your way, to love extravagantly, to be moved with compassion for them? If the world sees Christians doing nothing but evangelism, they're going to assume that we're only in it for our own power. They see us as only wanting to increase our tribe, as being prideful, thinking that our way is the only way. But if they say, I don't believe what those people believe, but I'm sure am glad they're here because they're making this city a better place. Only then are they going to listen to our words. Increasingly, in a non-Christian society, and where our church is located, it's a non-Christian community. Our deeds are going to open people to our words. Thanks be to God for His wonderful gift. Jesus, who even loved His enemies and enables us through the power of the Holy Spirit to love ours. Would you pray with me? Let me invite those who are serving communion to come forward along with the band. And Father, as we bow our hearts and as we bow our eyes, God, we're reminded of your love for us, your overwhelming, extravagant love. And God, as we sang this morning, God, I was just reminded of the glory of the gospel, that you're coming again, God, that For so many of us, it seems that as we walk through this life, almost with a limp, God, as we just limp through this life, God, that we're reminded that that this world is not our home, God. And that as we pass through, Father, may we live victoriously. God, I want to pray for individuals who are in this room. And God, as as we sang, you've broken every chain. God, I want to pray for individuals who who have forgotten the goodness of the gospel and your resurrection. God, that you have the power that, God, that not only created this this earth, but that brought your son back to life. And that, God, you can break chains in our lives. God, chains of addiction and, God, chains of um, tradition and family sin that seems to have settled into our hearts, even into our lives, our personalities. God, that you can break the chains that bind us. God, that there's hope because of Jesus and the resurrection and his Holy Spirit who lives in us. Father, may we live in victory. May we live as men and women who have hearts that are filled with compassion. God, filled with compassion for those who are poor, poor without resources, God, poor without food, poor without shelter, poor without light, gas, and water that we take for granted, poor without fathers, poor without mothers, and God, also for those who are poor, who don't know the hope of Jesus, who are amassing riches, shiny things that they put their hope in. God, may you give us compassion for those who are down and out and for those who are up and out. 
And God, may our hearts be moved. Jesus, thank you that you are hope and that you are victory. God, help us by the power of your spirit to even love our neighbors, to even love our enemies as we love ourselves. And to be obedient to all that you call us to in this moment and in this day as you speak to our hearts. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that we can trust you and that we can leave here with greater hope and greater joy as we walk in obedience because we know that your way is the way of victory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.